This is Catalog and Cocktails. Hello, everyone. It's time once again for Catalog and Cocktails. This is your weekly live, honest, no BS, non salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverages in hand. I'm Tim Gasper, longtime data nerd and product guy at Data.World, joined by Juan. Hey, Tim. I'm Juan Cicada, principal scientist at Data.World, and it's Wednesday, middle of the week. Time to take a little break and have a drink and chat about data in an honest, no BS way. And today uh, we have an awesome guest because all our guests are awesome. But so I'm really, really, really excited because uh, we're going to get talk about so much stuff about data and graphs and who else would be the, one of the best people in the world to go talk about this. And Emil Afrin, the CEO of Neo4j. Emil, how are you doing? Welcome. I am glorious. Thanks, guys. Uh, looking forward to this. All right. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, if you don't know who Emil is, you've probably been living underneath a rock. Uh, so, I think you're a man who does not need any introductions. And, but let's just go start off with our discussion here about telling and toasting. Tell us what we're drinking and what are we toasting for. Emil, you want to start off? Yeah. Um, so, I'm drinking uh, Jemtland's IPA. Mm. Which is uh, uh, my favorite Swedish. I'm if the, for those of you who who can actually see the visual. Uh, I'm basically sitting in what looks like a sauna right now. It's it's midnight here in Sweden, an hour before midnight, and it looks like a sauna. I'm here in Sweden, and this is uh, my favorite local uh, microbrewery, Jämtland's uh, Brewery, which is it's a region in the northern part of uh, of Sweden. And I'm drinking today uh, their IPA. Awesome. Well, I uh, I look forward to going to Sweden one day, and then uh, hopefully we'll meet up and have beers together over there. And and thank Sweet. you for joining us so late. Uh, it feels like uh, a, a nice sort of evening ambiance you've got going on. I think it's perfect because I can legitimately drink this without being too decadent, right? It's 11 p.m., right? And uh, whereas, you know, I guess I think when you recorded with DJ, the guest from the Last week, it was probably morning for him or something like that. Right? <laughs> hey, it's always 5 yeah. p.m. somewhere, right? <laughs> exactly. It, it, it's, exactly. It's, it's hard on the uh, the West Coasters when they got to drink at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, right? <laughs> exactly. How about you, Tim? What are you drinking today? I am drinking a uh, Vesper Martini. I'm, I'm running a little low on some of my liquors. I got, I got some gin. I had some vodka and some lemon and a little bit of Lilith Blanc. So that's what I'm drinking today. And a wine glass because I have no martini glasses. I got to upgrade <laughs> my game a little bit. Well, I'm having a, a vodka soda, but not any type of vodka. It's one of uh, uh, my favorite vodkas that you get in Mexico. So it's a Smirnoff spicy tamarind vodka uh, with grape uh, fruit soda and that's what I'm having here. So cheers. And, and I, I'm going to kick off toasting because I finally launched my book I've been working on for years and uh, it is now out there. You can go uh, get the book, Design and Building Enterprise Knowledge Graphs, uh, together with my co-author, Aura Lasilla from Amazon. So um, I'm cheering to that. Years finally in the making and done. Cheers. <laughs> awesome. Cheers. Congrats, Juan. Amazing. Cheers well to done. that as well. So we got our, our, our warm-up question here, which is, um, what has changed the most about yourself over the past 10 years? Who wants to start? Man. You put you on the spot here. <laughs> That's a hard one. Uh, Honest, Tim, no how, how, how about you go first? Because uh, that one was hard. 
All right. Yeah. When I first saw this question about 10 minutes ago, I was like, oh, gosh, what am I going to say? Um, I decided that uh, I'm going to say, you know, my forehead wrinkles, they've they've deepened quite nicely over the last 10 years. It really gives me a weathered kind of distinguished look, I would say. Um, and you know what I've noticed over the last 10 years? I like whiskey way more than vodka now. That is that has evolved quite a bit for me. <laughs> How about you, Emily? You have one now? Any oh man, no, I probably don't look, I mean, 10 years, like 10 years ago, I just started Neo4j and I was single. Um, right. And now I'm married, have three kids and I guess four kids, including the company, right? Neo4j. Um, what has changed the most? I feel like freaking everything has changed except for my love for graphs. That one still remains. Um, but, uh, pr probably my, my, uh, ability to, to go for days, if not weeks, if not months at end with very little sleep. I used to be one of those people who didn't, I, I didn't have to sleep a lot, but I think probably around the time when I crossed into my forties, uh, you know, now I need, I need a solid six, seven hours per night, you know, otherwise I, I, I fall over. I'm going to see a couple <laughs> of yours. Like I'm the sleep thing is the same. 10 years ago, I was in the middle of my PhD and I was like, oh, you sleep four or five hours and that's it. Now exactly. I need to sleep eight hours, like minimum eight hours. And that has changed my life. And so life recommendation is go sleep eight hours. It's a good thing. And I think also I and my appreciation for wine has dramatically increased uh, in the last 10 years. So that's me. Hey, so let's go kick this off. Uh, Emil, honest, no BS question. This whole data landscape, it's bonkers it's freaking crazy in your perspective because you've been looking at this for over a decade now how how did we get here and where are we going let's go start with this and we got more things to go dive in yeah yeah that is one uh, broad question but may maybe maybe let's split it into how did we get here and then you know later on we do like where where, where is it going right um so i guess at the high level, I kind of joined this uh, world as as a vendor, as it were, right? Uh, you know, at the at the cusp of NoSQL, right? Um, you know, Neo4j was founded back in two thousand seven. We had a couple of years, right, and then NoSQL happened summer of '09, right? And prior to that, I was a user of data products, right, but not a producer of them, you know, as a, as it were. Um, and I think kind of walking into the, the previous decade, like there was this explosion of experimentation, right? This was on the back of, you know, I, I feel like it got kicked off by, you know, Amazon's Dynamo paper. And then, you know, very, you know just a few months after that, Google's big table paper. And, and just the observation that the big web giants, they didn't run on the relational database, right? And, and so that created this massive divergence, right? There's a site called DB Engines that I'm sure many people who listen to this podcast would be familiar with, but they they track a bunch of signals around uh, database projects like tweets and Stack Overflow questions and Google searches and stuff like that. Um, and they're now tracking over 350 databases. And you know, when I grew up as a professional developer in the mid '90s, there's like a handful to choose from, right? Sybase, Informix, Oracle, DB2 whatever, MySQL, right? And Don't honestly, forget they SQL were like, Server. The SQL Server, MySQL. right? Well, yeah, that, that's right, yeah. And, and honestly, there's like 
8.7% the same product. And that's a scientific statement. Um, now, because I mean, it's like basically the same product, right? And then on the margin, there's a little bit. So it was basically a vendor choice. And then fast forward to kind of the early parts of the previous decade, all of a sudden it's like key value store this and document database that and graph database this and time series database. There's just explosion of, of, of choice. And and I think there's there's a number of reasons why that happened. First of all, I think that the only time when you can take a new database and bring it to the market is when you have a platform shift of a kind. If, if we think back to you know, the, the shift from mainframe to, to client server, that was really you know, what built Oracle, right? That, what enabled Oracle to be built, right? In the relational database. And then we had kind of client server to web and that's where MySQL was born. And if you look at kind of where we are today, I think there's two broad platform shifts, the, the shift to the cloud and then the shift to mobile. And, and mobile hasn't really given birth to a new database. Couchbase tried for a while, uh, Realm tried until they got acquired by, by, by Mongo. But there really isn't like a, a new kind of, this is the, this is the database for, for the mobile platform, right? But of course the cloud shift has enabled a bunch of them. So I think that's, that's a big driver. And maybe let me pause, this ended up being a long monologue, but like that's one, I think there's three, four other key drivers that, that caused this explosion of choice in the early part of the previous decade. But you know, let me pause there and see if you guys even agree this far. Also pause to drink some of this delicious beer. Well, I think it's an interesting statement, and I agree, and I agree with is that at the beginning it was just always these five six databases, and that's it, right? I think uh, remember the Lamp Stack, right? Linux, uh, Apache, MySQL, yeah. PHP, like that. I mean, that's how everybody got involved with what, that was a, that was a simple, easy, free way to go get involved with with, with databases. And that was it, right? And if, and then one day, like I, I'm growing up, I get out of my SQL and I use either SQL Server and or Oracle. That that was it. I mean, even DB2, like, is you use DB2 because IBM made you go to it. But um, so that's a really good observation that it's it was just a vendors, right? You just had this one thing, and all these vendors sell the they sold the exact same hammer, just happened to have this different label to it. And but the the the, the kind of the whole no SQL thing is people started getting kind of annoyed with SQL, right? It was, first of all, it was no SQL. And then people were like, well, it's not only SQL. And then kind of the whole, what's so ironic is that now we put SQL layers on top of the no SQL. Now everything has a JDBC driver and stuff like that. So at some point, and a lot of people I go, I do talk to is like, well, SQL is still going to go prevail, right? It's not going to go anywhere. Um, but then we have 350 databases. So it's not, it's not true or not. I mean, how the heck do we get to 350 different databases and what are those categories? I mean, th th this is, this is ridiculous. Do we really need all those different types of databases? Has, I mean, has the specialization been a good thing? It's a, it's a good question, right? And so like, how did we get here? And then is specialization good? I think, I think there's probably three components that I, that I think of, right? One is kind of an enabling force. And I think of the, the, the shift to the cloud as, as, as one of them. Uh, that introduced new architecture patterns, things like microservices and containerization, which shifted us more away from this big monolith, right? Where if you wanted to, for whatever reason, like if you wanted to uh, switch out your database, if you have a massive monolithic type architecture, it's more costly, it's harder, right? So the value has to be bigger in order to even switch out your database, right? 
And so that's all kind of on the enabling side as I think of it. And then I think of like, a, there's a pressure side or maybe there's, a, I sometimes think there's a supply side and then there's a demand side or a value side. On the pressure side then it's just the, I mean, I, I kind of hate the term big data. I always hated it. And, but like just the, the proliferation of like massive amounts of data and it's driven by all these sensors that we carry around in our pockets and just you know so so just more and more data that is more and more complex that exerts huge amount of pressure against the existing model which at the time was just the relational database right so i think on that kind of on the pressure side so that's the second bucket of forces the first one was the enabling one and then the third bucket of forces i think is on the value side or the demand side right and here's where things like ai and machine learning come in which is of course like this massive secular shift which is goes even beyond technology that's a that's a broader societal shift right um and that i think speaks to the value of using different types of, of data stores right so i think those are the three driving forces and a couple of examples in um in in each of them i do think the specialization served us as an industry well and maybe more so the experimentation right because like when you have a chance to get like like orders of magnitude betterness like for some definition of betterness like um, more agile software development, developer productivity or performance or scalability, it just unlocks new things, right? And, and if you can get that for your application or a slice of your application, right? Come to back, coming back to the microservices piece, it doesn't have to be for the entire application, but if a slice of your application can be orders of magnitude better, all of a sudden you can leapfrog the competition, create much more value for your for your users, right? Yeah. So I think that that was just really valuable for the industry at large. It, it's like, as you know, as as you're stating, I don't love the term either, right? But like, as as big data happened, as you know, unstructured data and in, and its various forms, right? Um, uh, fast data, streaming data, you know, geo data. I mean, you think of sort of the the specialization of data and the quantity and the complexity and the and the and, and all these things, right? It's like this environment made specialization become really beneficial because even though, you know, obviously SQL was this hammer that you could use to hit a lot of different, uh, a, a lot of different things with, people were like, well, but it's not really great at search. And it's not really great at working with JSON documents. And it's not really great at like dealing with events, right? It's good for transactions. And, and, and so you had this kind of explosion and, and obviously we'll talk about graph as well. Um, I think that's super interesting. And, uh, and just as a reminder to our audience, because I, I know that we've got a lot of folks listening right now, uh, feel free to uh, jump in with questions. And we're starting to see them pop up on the screen here. So definitely feel mm -hmm. free to add your questions live. Yeah, and, and then I think there's this tension, right? Because kind of in theory with what we just said, right? Like if, if a component of your application can become a 10X or a 1000X better, like let's say just let's just use performance because it's such a stark thing like a thousand times faster right like why wouldn't you do that all over the place well there's this tension right in in the real world because you don't want to introduce 13 new data stores in your application right because that's just a management nightmare a skill set nightmare like it's it's just all, all kinds of problems right and so then there's this tension between right all right 
maybe using exactly one for the entirety of my company, that's not the right thing to do. That's kind of the world we lived in in the 90s and the early 2000s. But we're not going to use each and every one of the 350 either, right? And so there, and I think as an industry, we're still figuring that out. Like how how many is 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 it appropriate uh, to to use? And I also think that. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, well, on, on that on on that vein of what which to use in the spectrum. Like, this is really interesting. I want to go navigate this spectrum. The first reaction I have is, well, the two sides are OLTP and OLAP, right? I got transactional data, and I got I, I need to go manage transactional data. I got manage analytical data, and then each within each one, you have a bunch of more specializations. I would argue that for trend for the types of transaction applications that we do, it's always the relational always will be kind of the winner there. I believe I want to hear what you think about this on the analytics. I think that's where things are going to see much more. That's where we're seeing more special types of specializations. What, what, how do you see this space right now between OLTP and OLAP kind of before where we're going on this? So, so I think um, success when I go to conferences and I participate in panels, I think panels are generally the lamest and most boring part of a conference, right? Unless there's a disagreement on the panel. So I'm going to carry that philosophy forward to a podcast yes. and say, I, I completely disagree with you, Juan. <laughs> on, like on, on, actually, on, on On both of those statements. So I, I, do, I do agree with the split between kind of analytical and, and transactional, but I actually think we're going to see a convergence. And, and maybe this is a segue to speaking about like kind of where, where the world is going, right? If, if, if we talked about kind of the, where we've been, okay, where, where do we believe it's, it's going? And at least the way that I think of it, I also think of it as this broader split between operational data stores, right? So these are used by developers to build applications. The applications use the data store, right? That's an operational data store, OLTP, right? And then analytical data store, right? Which is, which stores historical data and it's used by, uh, data scientists really to air quotes build machine learning build AI right you know or for data analysts uh, to 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 build reports uh, really and if we start on the on kind of the, the the right hand side on the on the analytical data store side um, it's system of record for history that's that's kind of what, what what they're doing and the question is what are you using that that history for and the way that I look at that landscape today, We've had for maybe two, three, maybe four years, we've had two product categories. Um, one is, let's call it the, the data lake dynasty, right? So this is really led by Databricks, right? And um, it's uh, the primary user here is the data scientist and it's very code centric, right? So that's kind of one category. And then the other category is, let's call it the cloud data warehouse. So this is Teradata in the cloud maybe, right? And uh, the primary user here is a, is a data analyst uh, rather than data scientist. And, and it's more SQL centric rather than code centric, right? So that, those have been the, the kind of the, 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 two, the two paradigms. And the leader here then is Snowflake, right? And of course, all the global cloud platforms have, have uh, implementations of this, for example, Redshift and, and, and other things like that, right? Um, so that's kind of that part, right? And what's very clear right now is that those two are converging into one, right? If you look at the features that Snowflake is launching right now, it is squarely targeted to the data scientist persona and they're very code centric, right? And some of that is core features in Snowflake itself. Some of that is deep integrations with the cloud platforms, but it's very much targeted to 
like the, the sweet spot of the Databricks use case, right? And if you look at what Databricks is doing with the, they call it the, the data lake house pattern, right? That's adding schemas on top of the data lake, which all of a sudden, and you're a world-class expert at this as Juan, right? Like that, the schema gives them an opportunity to build a, a query language, right? Build a query planner. And so all of a sudden they can add SQL on top of that, which is squarely targeted to the Snowflake uh, kind of sweet spot use case. So I actually think they're gonna converge. And I think the stable state here is actually one category uh, on the analytical data store side. So let me pause there. I, I'd love to talk about the operational side as well, but that's actually how I see that one uh, yeah. kind of over time. So the, the data warehouse is becoming the data where lake and the uh, the data lake is becoming the data lake house, and and maybe it'll get a little wary in there as well. Uh, th those things are converging, right? It's yes. it's it's like uh, your structured data wants to be able to support more unstructured data. Your more unstructured or code centric approach wants to be able to handle these analytical applications, right? Like your tableaus and your things like that. You want those to be able to work well with Databricks too. So those are kind of converging, is what you're saying. I, I yeah. nothing controversial here i think I, I completely agree with this um damn it i'm, I'm waiting <laughs> I, try, I tried to be disagreeable <laughs> well no I, so, so i think a, a very well, on the transactional side it sounds like maybe there's a little disagreement i, I think so that's where to get interesting but i think a very <laughs> valuable like, kind of insight here is the the data lake the data bricks right they're data scientists they're code centric the cloud data warehouse or the data analysts are the sql centric i think the cloud data warehouse like snowflake they're just taking your traditional old school oracles that people have been doing and they're like putting it in the cloud right the storage computer data stuff. in the cloud air quotes putting data in the cloud yeah. but yeah. i mean at the end of the day putting data, putting things in the cloud is supposedly make things easier or better for the business right I mean, it, it, okay, that, that is a yes, fully agree with that. Fact. Fact. Yes. Scientific fact. <laughs> All right, so let's go into some controversy. What's on this operational side? So so I think that on the on the operational side, I think that there's four segments emerging here. I think the the relational database is underlying it all, right? And and uh, we can talk later on how I think it's going to unfold in terms of relative weighting of the different of the different segments, right? But the database market today, it's the biggest market in all of enterprise software. It's a fifty billion dollar market, and if you it depend depends a little bit on on who you're asking, but if you talk to the Gartners and the IDCs and the Foresters of the world, you know it's expected to grow to a hundred billion over the next four to five years, either 2024 or 2025, right? So that's $50 billion of incremental market cap. And that's like real spend by, by enterprises primarily all around the world, right? And everyone is agreeing that most of that, if not almost all of that is coming from the new, right? That is not Oracle. And if you, if for those of us who's kind of studied the database market five, seven years ago, it was, a mature market growing at five to seven percent per year, and now it the, the growth is has skyrocketed, and it's all driven by these new segments. So, what are the new segments that at least I see? Right, I think there's four. One is what I call document plus plus. Right, again, air quotes. Right, that that's just that's just my my name name for it. Um, and this is the this is the old kind of document category spearheaded by Mongo, 
But what's very clear to, to us, at least here at Neo4j, right? Which is when we're out talking to customers for a single project, um, it's a zero sum game between Mongo and Couchbase, obviously, because they're a document database, but actually also Redis Labs, right? With, with, with Redis um, and Datastax with, with Cassandra, right? So you, they are competing for the same architectural slot in the same project, even though they have a little bit of a different, like they have different data models, right? But still they solve the same problem. That's actually the definition of a product category. So I think mm -hmm. they are the same product category, right? Led by Mongo, right? So, so, so that's the, document plus plus. So, so the problem that they're solving is to just be able to go set up an application, a product very quickly and um, one single, Guess application silo another database, but if my goal is to go create an application as fast as possible and scalable and all that stuff, just use a document database. That's exactly right. So that's right. the first one, um, document plus plus. The second one is graph, and, and there's no like order in between them, right? This is how I'm thinking about it. The, the second one is graph, and obviously, I, I made my career. I'm, I'm massively optimistic about about graphs, and you know, we'll talk more about that uh, uh, about that later. Um, and we can talk about the relative weighting between between the the, the, the categories, but that's a, that's the second one. The third one is time series, which is clearly differentiated. Now, Mongo just launched time series functionality uh, actually a couple of weeks ago uh, to to great fanfare. Um, I'm not I'm not an expert at, at time series databases, uh, but I'm looking at that and it everything and it feels like when all the vend database vendors added graph as a feature which MongoDB did in 3.4 with the graph lookup operator, you know, Datastax acquired Aurelius and added, you know, a, a layer on top of, of Cassandra for graphs and, and Cosmos tried to do that on top of their, um, for Microsoft on top of their document database. None of that worked. That all went sideways and didn't end up working, right? And so, when yeah. I'm looking at what Mongo is doing with time series, it feels very much like that. I think that's gonna be won by InfluxDB or TimeScale or one of the, purpose-built native time series databases. So that's the third category in my mind. And then the fourth one is new SQL, right? So this is basically in my mind, kind of Spanner, Google Spanner inspired, um, you know, massively scalable cloud native relational databases. So this is the, the cockroach DBs or, or the Yugabytes uh, of, of the world. So those four categories, document plus plus, graph time series and new SQL, is going to be the majority of the growth in the database space over the next four or five years. Um, and that's what I'm personally uh, excited about. So you feel like, based on your statements around sort of the time series segment, as you're looking at the space, you're kind of seeing these four specializations as being uh, their own sort of, there's their own optimization that happens within that specialization. That when you start to do things like say, hey, I've got, Hey, I've got my MongoDB and I'm going to throw my graph on top of it, or I'm going to throw my my time series on top of it. Or you say I'm I'm uh, you know a uh, time series database, and oh by the way, you can store you know uh, regular objects in me or something like that. That that you're now breaking what what feels to be these sort of like operational optimization areas. Yes, I'm looking at it from two axes. One is value to the end user, and the other one is how hard is it to bolt onto an existing system, right? And I think time series, for example, is very valuable for the end user. Um, 
and it's really hard to bolt onto an existing kernel. Like for example, at Neo4j, if we would try to do time series really well, we would have to do so many awkward things with our kernel. And I'm talking like very physical things, like how do you lay out data on disk, right? How do you structure it in memory, right? That in reality, it would be one of those classic engineering trade-offs where we wouldn't be as good for graphs anymore. Right? right now we can all fake it like these are all isomorphic models which is a fancy way of saying you can serialize data in one form to the other without losing losing data right and so you can also always fake it you know i, I can fake time series and model it in the graph you know and no. stuff like that but that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about doing it with real performance and real scale right yeah and you're talking you about box. that's it it's oh go easy. ahead juan yeah no, if you just want to have a checkbox, anybody, everybody can do everything. Exactly. But no, you're talking about who really own it. Yeah. Sorry, Tim. Right. Exactly. And, and and not just sort of, uh, you know, having a company own these things, right? So you like, for example, let's say MongoDB buys, uh, you know, Influx or something like that, right? That 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 is just because it's part of the portfolio doesn't, it you know, it doesn't mean that it's all part of the same database. Exactly. And is this, I mean, is this, good for like application developers like when you think about like you know hey i'm going to build this application and it's a relatively complex application and it has time series elements it has document elements it has you know one thing we haven't talked about i'm curious which bucket you feel like it falls into is like search right where you know the, the idea of like elastic search and things like that you know it, is this a good thing like you know like you kind of sometimes you need to like you need to combine like two three four things together to solve your problem maybe that's okay that's the new reality I think the goodness has to be evaluated with a business lens, right? Like what's the value of the problem that we're solving, right? If this allows us to solve like a business problem that was previously like un untractable, like you couldn't solve and it's really valuable to the business, right? Then I think, I think that's a, then it's a great, and you can do it because you can compose these different backends. Then I think that's a fantastic thing. But if you purely look at it entirely, just from a, from a technical perspective, it probably isn't because there's more moving parts and that's more complexity for the for, for for the developer but if it's in if it's in pursuit of something that is very very valuable i think that's what makes up for it so, so we're gonna, i want to keep graphs in, in separate right now because we're going to dive more into that you, so the use cases are kind of the the reasons why you would go for a document time series and in new sql i guess in graph 2 you talk about documents saying, well, if I have a single application, I want to have, I want to develop fast and have a very scalable solution document. But if my guess, if I'm using more, I got more, what sensor data or stuff, like I would use more time series. Like, and so what, when would you want to go use any of these four categories you were talking about? Because technically it, let's take time series out. You can probably use free. You can come up with any application saying, well, you can make, give reasons. You should use document for that. And you can also give good reasons why you should use a graph for that. So how would you even select on, on that? I think it's back to the shape of the data and the, the shape of the workload, the queries on that data, right? And if, you, if, if, if it's data, like if it's to your point, like, um, I don't know, stock ticker data, like once every second, we're reporting the value of the stock, right? That feels very time seriesy, and in particular, if you understand, you look at that. It's like, well, what we want to know is kind of the average of the past, you know, minute, hour, day. You know, wow, that's a very kind of time serious workload, right? Then it fits really well with that. Hey, I, all my developers, you know, they already serialized my data as JSON. Man, 
that seems to fit really well in a in a document database, right? And so I think it's back to it's it's the shape of the data and and the workload on it. I bet that's a, agreed. But so when would you use SQL? I guess we're all just like the quote 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 just trans the normal transactions or I mean I mean because all these transactions you can store also in the document you can store in all these things right so I'm now curious to see is is uh, where do you is see SQL, SQL just an, is SQL just an old habit dying hard I I think there's some of that I'm not I think it, one thing you said before Juan is was that that you believe or maybe you just kind of uh, wanted to be provocative saying that, you know, SQL will be around forever and will be the dominant paradigm. And I actually don't see it that way. I think okay. that, that you know, right now it it is, but like if you look at you know, the number of applications being written with SQL as a backend today versus 10 years ago, it is dramatically different. And my prediction is that 10 years from now, it's gonna look a lot different too, right? And I think it's because there's a lot, if you set aside kind of the analytical, if you set aside reporting and things like that, right? There's very few domains who are inherently table oriented, right? And and the way that I think about this is that like when you're kicking off, at least, you know, back in my, back when I was technical, which I'm, I'm no longer, right? But like back when I used to write code for a living, right? And you would, as a consultant, you would build a new system for someone like in, in the enterprise, right? Day one, you get into a room, tons of whiteboards, you have a bunch of domain experts and you just say, all right, tell me about your world. Tell me about the domain. Tell me about the application. You started whiteboarding that, right? And they started talking about pensions or insurance or whatever the, 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 the domain that they were experts at. Almost never did they end up intuitively drawing tables on those whiteboards. They might. If it's, for example, a payroll system, it's like first name, last name, I don't know, role, salary, you know, something like that. Like, okay, that's that's an intuitively tabular, you know, data set, right? But most of the time it's like we have a shopping cart. Inside of that shopping cart, we have order items. Those order items refer to a product. That product, you know. Like it's a book which sits in a product hierarchy, like might be a science fiction book, which is a fiction book, which is a book, right? That very infrequently ended up being tables, right? And so if if I think about kind of just all the applications being written out there, I think there's a there's um like an a mismatch, a cognitive mismatch between the building blocks exposed by by the relational database. Now it'll still be around. Like when we retire, you know, screw it. Like when the three of us, when we die, the relational database will still be around, you know, storing information, you know, that kind of stuff. It's not going anywhere. Mainstream, yeah, whatever. Mainframes are still around and COBOL is probably the most you know, popular programming language if you start looking or something ridiculous like, a, like that, right? And so it'll still be around. But if I look at new applications, I don't think most of them will use a relational database at the back end. So, so this is going to be this is a good segue to graph. But before we get there, um, a couple things. I, I, I saw a talk by Bob Muglia, right, the the, the the former CEO of Snowflake, and yes, and it's all about uh, relation always wins. And he's actually talking about the relational knowledge graph. And I, there's this friends of the company, you know, uh, relational, relational AI. 
relational AI, right? They're about the relational yep. knowledge gap and stuff. So um, I, I, I think I'm now thinking we need to have a panel where you put you guys here, this would be, this would be a fun one, right? So that's, that's one thing. So I think there is, I agree with you that relational always exists. I mean, it's not going to go away. Um, but I think there's always going to be the type of workload, the type of there's, there's, the, the, there's types of data that will always be tabular. So for example, I agree that we'll have, oh, an order has an order line, an order line has a product, the product goes into a shopping cart and all that stuff. But when you go into the details of what is an order, what is an order line, that's just tabular data. I mean, at the end, it's I just want all this stuff. It's just the relationships between the main things end up being more, or you draw them on the whiteboard as a graph. That's one thing. So I think there's, I think the, the, when people say graph, I, why graph? If I can do this in relation with like, you can do whatever you want in a Turing complete language. I don't care about that. It's like, at the end yeah. of the day, it's not about one or the other. I think it's going to be about a convergence of, we got to understand how it's not graph or relational it's graph and relational. And I think there are pieces of data that it's just, that are na naturally going to be tabular, but the relationships between them, again, relationships, connectedness. I think that, that that's, that's, how I see it. So it needs to be a combination of those two things. And the other part is that when you start doing the analytics, you start doing, I want to do an average, like that's, ta that's tables at the end of the day. It's like, I just want to go sum everything in this column. Right. So I, so I think tables are going to, I think one is how, how I'm building applications and storing the data for those applications and, and what's the best way of managing that. And I definitely agree that the graphs is the way to go do this because that's how you think about it in your head. That's what you would do on the whiteboard. But when you're actually using the data to do some sort of analytics for some sort of analytics or kind of like traditional old school analytics, still reporting on tables. Now we're taking it to the next level and you want to go do things that are in graphs and stuff. So, which takes us to the topic about graphs, which up to now we've been talking for like half an hour and haven't touched on graphs on purpose. <laughs> let's get into graphs now because heck, that's your life. That's my life. <laughs> the main yes. course, huh? Yes. My main course. You're in the main course now. Um, graphs, where, where, where do we, where should we start? <laughs> Take a There's so much amazingness to talk about. Isn't okay. So let, let's start, let's start. <laughs> with, why, why are you fascinated by graphs? Like, why did you decide to go focus your entire world, life, company, everything around yeah. graphs? So a couple of things. Well, specific, like very, um, uh, precisely a couple of things, two things. Um, one is comes back to maybe dovetailing off of the conversation we just had as a developer. Um, I just found that to be the most intuitive model to express most domains, right? For those of you listening in to this podcast, who is not doing it, commuting, like whatever, just audio only. If you're at a computer right now, go to images.google.com, search for domain model, right? Which is the way to express an application, right? When you're build, really building a new application, search for domain model. What you'll see, there is a page full of example domain models. Keep scrolling. Every single one of them you'll see is a graph. Every single one of them. Go to the Wikipedia page for domain model. Right there, it has a US healthcare one. It, you know it's US healthcare because it's very complex. <laughs> uh, and it's like, and it's a big graph, right? I think all applications are graphs. 
right? It's, um, it's objects connected to other objects and they're connected in various ways. And I just found that to be the, the most friction-free way to translate the domain model into something that a database could operate on. So that was kind of the first one. The second one was the observation that, um, and, and I guess this is a this is a this is a podcast about data um, and, and beer, you know, cheers. and cocktails, yeah, and, and cocktails. Sorry, cheers. And and the question is, what is data? This is the second second reason, right? What is data? Data is actually a fairly abstract concept. Like you ask people, what is data? To me, data describes the world. It describes the real world, right? And what is very, very clear in terms of a, one of the most secular trends in the universe, at least on our planet, is the world is becoming increasingly connected, right? I say on a you know, podcast recorded from three locations you know, in the world, I sit here with you know, two phones, with two AirPods, <laughs> like my car is 150 plus, you know, computers embedded and connected in various ways as four SIM cards connected to the internet, right? Everything is becoming more and more connected. And if you add those two things together, data describes the, the real world, the real world is becoming more connected. There's gonna be more and more connected data in the world, right? And so I felt, and graph databases are the most amazing piece of technology for figuring out how things are connected and, if that's true, then the drivers, the reason to use a graph database, is just gonna be more and more every day, right? And so you add those two things together, that's what ultimately made me so excited why we created Neo4j the product and ultimately Neo4j uh, the company. Before we get too much into the graph tech side, I mean, obviously you've been doing this um, uh, doing this for a while, and you just talked about sort of the inspiration that led to it. Um, let's start with the business use cases, right? So what would you say, you know, is the business value of graph? Like you're, you're trying to convince execs to invest in graph database technology. Like what use cases are you pointing to? What ROI are you pointing to? Yeah, I think when you talk to execs, I think it's 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 two levels, right? Depending on where they sit in the in the organization, right? If it's absolute top level, like board level, CEO level, CIO level, it's aligning to massive broad trends. It's it's back to and I apologize on a no BS podcast for using this term, but it's back to digital transformation, right? <laughs> You're shifting all your business to become digital. That's you need okay. A we'll we'll, we'll bleep it out later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and, and you need a platform for that. And you know, graphs built some of the most amazing, you know, billion, trillion dollar companies on the planet, Facebook, Google, that is all the underpinning of that was graph technology. We give you that for the, like for the normal enterprise, not for the web companies, right? So that's kind of the highest level pitch to like boardroom level, right? A more common one is for, let's call it mid-level line of business excess, right? And then it's about taking a very specific business problem. It's not talking about the technical stuff at all. None of what we've talked about so far in the podcast. It's saying, dear director of risk at a big bank, right? You know what? Your fraud detection software today can capture a lot of bad guys, right? But you know what they can't capture? 
It's if you have a number of transactions, none of which are anomalous, but they're connected in a way that is anomalous, right? Which is, for example, a fraud ring, right? The only way you can do that is being able to operate on connected data, right? And the only way you can do that is by using a graph database. So let's have a conversation. Let's spin up a project. Give me, and I'll make up some numbers, a million for my database, five million for the project, six to nine months down the line, we're gonna augment your existing fraud detection solution with a way to capture fraud rings, which will increase your ability to detect fraud by three to 5%, right? So that's a very business level you know, type of thing. But then, it, and then it's the same for you know, retail recommend, like real time recommendations, for example, in retail or you know, identity, identity and access management, or you just go down the list of the, the kind of the classic business problems that graphs solve today of which there are n amount today and n plus one tomorrow and n plus two the day after tomorrow there's just more and more because the world is becoming more connected and more and more business problems require or at least benefit from being able to operate on connected data i love that way of approaching it and uh and and I know Juan and I in our notes here are like yes, um, because uh, we we agree with a lot of how you're you're sort of pitching that and uh, and and in that in, in what you just said there right, graph database could be replaced with X right, and X could be whatever is providing that value and I and I love that yeah. uh, you know you you know you're resonating you're, you're speaking the right language to business people if you can replace whatever it is with some other word or phrase and really it's about the business value. That's exactly right. So, um, well, we're, we're seeing here on the chat, uh, kind of the, some of the technical questions that I knew we were going to go get anyways, right? The whole convergence of different graph stuff. And, and I think we're, I'm going to bet that we're here on the same page on this one, which is, it's not about the RDF versus the property graph. At the end of the day, these things will also converge. Well, that's my position. I'm curious and, and, and that what your position is right now. Yeah, so this is probably an area like I, I mentioned when we when we talked uh, before. You, you'd school me on this on this topic, but we, I think I think we probably do disagree here, right? I think okay. RDF. Yeah, I I think so, right? Um, I think RDF like was a massive source of inspiration for me. And before we built Neo4j, like I spent a lot of time in RDF land because finally someone saw the world as a graph, right? And it was just, it just clicked with me on such a deep level, right? The concept was fantastic. The implementation was horrible, right? And it was so clear that every single software that I bumped into, every API that I bumped into was written by someone whose primary deliverable was an academic paper. And as a side effect, they had to write some software, which meant that the APIs were kind of eh, whatever and stuff like that, right? And and as a developer, I just felt tortured. Like there's so much friction between me and that beautiful graphy data model, right? You but you had to go through all this pile of crap to get there, right? Um, and yeah, that was 15 years ago. That was 15 years yeah, ago for sure. And and, and I think and I think that's so. The question then is, how much has it improved? And I think it probably has improved significantly but still i feel like the massive benefit of the property graph model and why graph databases took off i will i will immodestly like immodestly <laughs> say um 
that it is thanks to property graphs, not thanks to RDA. I I know I, right? I, I will definitely I I publicly say this. This is thanks a lot, not just to the to, to the Neo4j and the property graph, also to your gigantic marketing machine. <laughs> that, that, that I mean, and in your grassroots approach to this, right? I mean, yeah. that that was beautiful. Yeah, That's in, in, in Neo4j and, 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 and others, right? Like Neo4j and, and 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 other vendors in the property graph space, right? But that real focus on the developer and developer productivity, where I would rate as, you know, C or something like that, right? And, you know, something like Mongo or, My, or MySQL is like A minus or B plus or something like that. I think there's a lot that we can improve here, by the way, right? But I think RDF was never, never even a C, right? And I think that held people back from what I think is this very intuitive and powerful model, right? So the, will they converge then? Maybe, I, I don't know, right? I, there's parts of me that is nervous about RDF's prominence because I just have this scar tissue of developers wanting to get to graph data, encountering RDF, having such an awful experience that they end up getting turned off, right? So I I, I would argue that the, the, I think your the position that you're talking about is was definitely spot on for things that were 15, 10 years ago. I think it's changed a lot in the last five years uh, and we don't have time to go into. I think that's another type of podcast episode we can go have, but I, I, I'm very happy with the work that, uh, for example, Jesus Barraza from your team is doing on the node, yeah. right? I mean, that's just showing you how that stuff is converging. Uh, and then you have things like Neptune who are doing both Sparkle and Gremlin and they have Cypher, uh, open Cypher support. Just so, launch Cypher, yeah. yeah. So I think I, I, that's how I'm seeing more and more of these tools. I mean, you're seeing uh, uh, other databases, I mean, Anzo and Stardog, they're also supporting some sort of the property graph, right? Can they do that better? Yes, there's biases, of course, but I'm just like, I'm seeing these kind of convergences going on. And also in the whole standards and the whole GQL standards and the, and the, and the property graph schema working group, which I'm, 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 I'm the chair of right now, like we see how you bring in all those things that the other, that the RDF world has done in and like, yeah, we're, con we're, we're converging to it. Actually, there's a knowledge graph book coming out or from O'Reilly from with from Amy and and, and Jesus and and uh and uh I actually reviewed it and wrote the forward for it and I loved it. It and it's just showing more of the convergence about it. So uh, I don't know if you've read my forward yet, but hopefully you will and uh you will soon. And I think, I, I've uh, not I've not read your forward yet, but there's another enterprise knowledge graph book coming out too, right? Not to be forgotten. Uh there's one that came by, out this by week. you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. <laughs> right. All right. I, I think we're getting kind of a, 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 a our producer is telling us that we got to look at the time right now and we got some kind of wrap up stuff we want to go do. Uh, Emma, we could just sit here and talk for hours and I just can't wait for us to go do that. We should probably do this again. We have to do a, a, a graph update or the, or the next version of this. Uh, Redux. Yes. And focus exclusively on graphs. But um, let's go into our little. Uh, lightning round which you have no idea what we're going to go ask you so i have no idea all right but so i'm drinking great beer so i i you i i'm not i'm not afraid i will charge ahead all right so first question so so many people know sql in the world will there be a day that that same amount of people actually know a graph query language absolutely there's no doubt in my mind all right nice direct all right, second question. I thought it was yes, no question. Like I, I'm happy to yeah. expand on it. 
<laughs> but uh, you but can yeah, add a little I, color. I, I, yeah, it, feel free to add a little it, color. No, it's it it is it's back to the trends we talked about before. Everything is becoming more connected. So the performance and scalability driver of of graph databases, which was the primary driver of graph database adoption in the previous decade, and will remain a really important driver in this decade, but it's not going to be the primary one. But that driver, it'll just that pain will increase as the world is becoming more connected. Data sets are becoming more connected. Your competition is going to use connected data queries, which means you're going to have to do it because otherwise you're going to be, they're going to be the Google and you're going to be the Alta Vista if you can't operate on connected data, right? So that along with the other driver, right, of this just being a, a domain, a better fit for most domain models means that. I actually think there's an opportunity. It's not guaranteed, it won't happen naturally, but if we at Neo4j and other graph vendors play their cards right, right, I think there's an opportunity for graph databases to be the first database that developers reach for when they're building a new application. I love this. You wanna be the Google or Alta Vista? Go Tim, exactly. right well, you know, I, I think about the the '80s and how so that that's so popular. You know, the retro thing. Maybe Alta Vista is kind of cool now. It's retro, right? <laughs> um, um, all right. So uh, I got a I got a question for you, and then I think we we may need to move forward just because of time constraints. So, will the majority of new business applications ten years from now, so majority over fifty percent, be built on graph databases at the core? Yes, and that's right. what I just had. All right, I, I yep, got it. Let's move. We'll do quick on this one. This is a funny one. Did you really come up with the property graph model on a plane to Mumbai? Yeah. So, so this is this is where like kind of marketing simplifies things, right? <laughs> so I, I I I first drew the model literally on a cocktail napkin, right? Like with nodes and relationships and key value pairs on, on on both, right? But then we had an intense week with that team where we really refreshed it and you know all that kind of stuff. But but that usually gets lost in kind of the the simplified marketing version. And then in parallel, folks like Marco Rodriguez are all, had built this out without having seen our stuff, right? He built it out for, for his stuff, in, which ultimately led to Tinkerpop, you know, a couple of iterations down the line, right? But yes, that first, on that flight to Bombay, I was like, all right, I need to stay ahead. Like, these guys are really smart. I need to think a little bit, what are we trying to build there? And I drew it on, on a cocktail napkin what people today call the property graph model. All right. Well, hey, uh, takeaway time. Tim, TTT, Tim takes us away with takeaways. Yeah, I mean, there was so much good stuff. I mean, we say that every single week. We, we're very blessed with our with our speakers. Uh, I mean, one of my big takeaways is around your assessment of the landscape, right? Thinking about sort of the divergence of the transactional or operational database space, but how these specializations are really useful. And then on the analytics side, how you've got sort of the data lake and the data warehouse, but these things are converging. But ultimately, all of these things are tools in the tool chest that you have to make the right choices for to optimize for your particular business use case. So I think that's very helpful. And what what, what about you, Juan? I, you're very concrete. The four things you're seeing, Document++, Mongo, CouchDB, Graphs, Time Series, New SQL. That's where the world is going. How do you know which one to go select? Understand the shape of your data and your query workload. That um, back to you, I'm a very quick and short advice. Two things, two questions. One, what's your advice about anything, life, data? Second, who should we invite next? Just, just advice generically? Like any advice? Any advice. Anything you want. 
Oh my God. That's uh, yeah, that's very broad. Um, well, okay. So let me maybe segment it in, um, in three, three different ways. Uh, then um, advice to, I, I bet we have other kind of fellow startup founders, entrepreneurs, you know, that type of type of an audience. And one of the things is, first of all, ignore advice, right? That's what I, I've, I've gotten a lot of advice. I've listened to some of it. I've ignored most of it, right? So that's kind of the first one. The one thing though, that always is true is there's no way for you, dear fellow startup founder, to over-index on understanding the customer. Like that's the one thing. And when I say customer, I mean the actual user of your product, not the economic buyer, yes, they're valuable, not their boss, yes, they're valuable, not freaking procurement, yes, they're valuable, but understand the actual user of your product. There's no way you can spend too much time doing that, right? That's the one advice for startup founders. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, I think general work advice, surround yourself with the, with the, I mean, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, right? So find the brightest people, no matter what the role is, no matter what the pay is, just find the, 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 the brightest, smartest, most well-intended people you like, that, that you can. I think general life advice, I sometimes get asked this these days as if I had any clue what I'm, what I'm doing. But, the, but I think the one thing I will, will say though is I feel like people are really under indexing on choosing their life partner. I feel like I find really thoughtful people who are like, like they take such considerate blah, 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 blah. And then they marry the person who they happen so in, in Sweden, like they happen to be you know, dating when they're in their early thirties. And probably in the US it's it's earlier, like mid twenties, right? I'm like, what are you doing? Like this is the probably the number one decision that will impact your life the most is your life partner, right? Man, don't um, don't take that decision lightly. So my improvised three slices of advice, it, since you gave it me like a very broad, be, broad be umbrella. choosy, everyone. Very, very just because you hit 33 doesn't mean you have to choose, you have to marry, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. 30 seconds, who should we invite next? Um, you should invite Jeff Jonas uh, from Sensing. Uh, uh, if you haven't had him on, like, uh, you know, you know that I listened to many episodes uh, of this podcast even before you invited me. Uh, I haven't listened to all of them, so I don't think you've had him on, but I don't know. No. But Jeff Jonas uh, is uh, founder of a company called Sensing. He's one of the main thought leaders, if not the main thought leader in ER entity resolution. Um, I think he's the only IBM fellow to ever leave IBM. I, I think that's true. And it's just like one of the smartest people ever in, in, in data. Uh, get Jeff on the show. Awesome. Emil, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, this was an amazing conversation. Uh, I think we have to go do this again to focus 100% on graphs on that next time. Uh, cheers. Thank you. Enjoy, uh, enjoy sweet. Enjoy your beer. And next week, we're going to have Denise Gosna, who's the CDO of Datastax. I talked to her today, and she sends a lot of uh, best regards and going to continue the conversation about graphs and data and open Another graph enthusiast. There we go. Databases cheers. for the win. Cheers, cheers. cheers.